And we'll be looking at what it has to say about various vices. That's what we've been looking at for a little bit. Um, now, remember that a vice is simply a moral fault or a failing. And that can range from something very trivial to something serious to something even fatal. Uh, for example, improper manners could be a trivial rudeness, or they can escalate all the way up to something serious, such as uh, not covering your mouth and nose when you're sneezing and coughing and giving other people your illness. I guess it's sort of a good proper reminder this time of year to do that. Um, it could get fatal if it ends up in something like road rage, which causes accidents that maim and kill people. So vices can be extremely serious. And societies develop moral customs. We call those mores. And that will determine within that group whatever is accepted or not accepted. But remember that only God can decide what is right, what is wrong, what is good, and what is bad. It only belongs to him. It's his prerogative. In addition, society may set up these mores to give some guidance, but they can't determine the consequences for them, and vices always have consequences. For example, tobacco products are accepted within certain groups, but their usage still does not, uh, they, they can't do anything about diminishing the risk of cancer in using it. There's a, a consequence to it. That's why we call it a vice. Even more serious is the consequence that God is the one that judges and he will hold us all accountable for our vices. Now, we already looked at a few things. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the tongue, and there are vices associated with that, gossip, seduction, flattery, deceit, lying. And last week, we examined pride. Now, I pointed out last week that there's proper pride and there's improper pride. There's evil pride. That which is good and reflects God can be proper. That which does not reflect him can be evil, improper. It's proper for God to be proud. It is proper for humans to delight in God and in the relationship to him. That actually is one of the definitions for pride. It's proper for humans to take pleasure and satisfaction in what the Lord is doing and what he is doing in you and through you. Those are, are proper things to have that kind of pride about. Uh, we can take pleasure and have satisfaction and what the Lord does for us, we can actually and should express that pleasure and satisfaction to those who do things for us. We can be proud of people. It's also proper to have a self-confidence in what you know you can do and what you should do, while so always remembering that it's God that works through you. However, for the most part, human pride is very negative. It's an evil that God hates. It's at the root of so many other sins. It was the very first evil that entered into Creation, Lucifer, thinking he could rise up and usurp God, took that position in Isaiah 14, and mankind has followed suit. We think more highly of ourselves than we ought. We think we are better than we are and have a position that we don't actually have. It gets expressed in various ways, in arrogance and haughtiness and pomposity and in insolence and supersalaciousness and disdain and all sorts of things. We simply think more highly of ourselves than we ought. And in doing that, we magnify ourselves and we diminish God. That's part of its evil. I think it's safe to say that most of man's problems actually go back to this. It traces back to pride, both in our problems with God and our problems with other people. 
That's why God is opposed to the proud, James 4, 6 tells us. Man's only hope is humility. God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And so man must humble himself and think rightly about himself. Now, actually, that's not that hard to do, to humble yourself. Because all it is is coming to grips with the truth. Recognize who you really are, what you really are, and your relationship in standing before God. But that's the problem, isn't it? Man does not want to recognize and acknowledge that we are just but finite creatures who have fatally disobeyed our Creator and are under His judgment, His condemnation. We don't like that. We don't like the fact that we are completely incapable of making restitution, payment, or absolving our own sins in any way, shape, or form. We're desperately anxious to find some way that we can earn our approval of God, so we're forcing him to position he has to accept us. Without divine intervention, all men are condemned and are going to be cast in the eternal lake of fire. That's our true position. And if you recognize that, it's not hard to be humble because there's nowhere to go. You're at the bottom. You see, the good thing, though, is that God has done exactly that in Jesus Christ. He has intervened into our lives. He has paid the price of sin so that we can be forgiven, redeemed, and adopted into his family. And that offer of this salvation, it's a gift of his grace. Grace is what is given to you that's a benefit that you do not deserve. And grace is exactly what the Lord gives to the humble. Correct? So humility is the answer. In addition, humility, we find, is the resolution for human problems, too. Paul explains in Philippians 2, 3, and 4 that the means of living in harmony is as follows. Again, this is Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. See where the humility comes in right there? I regard others as more important. I magnify them. I diminish myself. That's humility. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. I get out of my selfishness. Now, that's the attitude that Jesus Christ had that is explained in the rest of that chapter in Philippians 2, and it's the attitude we're to have. If that is our attitude, our relationships go a whole lot smoother, don't they? Well, the next vice I want to look at has a very close association with pride, which is why I want to review it very briefly. It also has a very same cure, anger. Anger is an emotion. It's a strong feeling of displeasure. It's often accompanied by annoyance, antagonism, even hostility. And there are different levels of anger. And they range everything from the Lord's burning and consuming wrath all the way down to something as simple as vexation. And these levels are expressed in a lot of different Hebrew synonyms. Now, because anger is an emotion, it in itself is therefore neither good nor evil. Anger itself is neither good nor evil. The moral quality of it is determined by the cause of it and the actions that are taken as a result of it. Now, the anger of God is always righteous. And the anger of man, when it reflects God, a godly anger, is also righteous. But when it does not reflect godliness, it is unrighteous. Now, even when a man's anger is of a righteous nature, there still has to be great caution. James chapter 1, <clears throat> I'm sorry, that's James chapter, yeah, James chapter 1, 
verse 19. This you know, my beloved brethren, but let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Why? For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. We have to be very cautious even if we are righteous in our anger. Now, as I prepared this sermon, I soon realized that this whole subject of anger is very large. And the study was not easy. Uh, There are a few paragraphs in here that took three to four hours just to put one paragraph together. Because in order to figure it out, I had to go into a lot of Hebrew words. Embarrassing to say that 26 years ago, I tutored Hebrew. I can't even recognize the letters anymore. I'm really grateful for a modern program which pops all this stuff up and I can quickly find it, but I still have to find all this stuff and compare it back and forth. Because in order to understand it, we have to start looking at all these Hebrew synonyms. That becomes complex because the same Hebrew word can be translated in English as anger, wrath, fury, indignant, vexed, all depending on the context. In addition, the same English word can, be, can go back to several different Hebrew words that begin depending on context. So all these things have to keep being looked up, which got very interesting. But unless we have an understanding of these different levels and what's kind of behind these different levels of anger, we're not going to understand very well what the Proverbs say when we go and look at, at any particular proverb. And Hebrew is a very descriptive language. There's a lot of metaphor that is used in it, and I'm going to be pointing that out. And as I do look at these different words, uh, I'll be pointing out, too, when this type of anger is righteous, when it is unrighteous. But again, my goal is I want you to be able to apply the things of God's word into your life. Um, If I was going to be thorough with this and detailed of all the things that are about anger, well, it would take several weeks and I'd have to write a book. There's that much stuff on anger uh, in all the scriptures. But fortunately, we're a little more narrow because we're trying to focus on Proverbs and practical application. But I've got to give some background here first. It's sort of like my study of pride last week. The more I got into it, the bigger it got. So you'll bear with me, please, if some of this gets a little on the, the academic or technical side. It has to have a foundation here. Now, there are many different Hebrew synonyms, and there are broad categories, and that's how I'm going to look at these. The first is the largest category, and these are various words that relate somehow to heat. Anger is hot. Um, It also could be something that is being warmed, like a fire being kindled. Uh, And there's a word that even refers to anger in terms of smoke that rises from a fire. Now, the first word, hema, is the most serious type of anger. The word is derived from either uh, yeham, which means to be hot, or hemam, which means to become warm or be warm or become hot. And it's used in the Old Testament only in reference to heat within a person. It could be physical or metaphorical. It could refer to someone who has a fever, That's heat within a person, as in Deuteronomy 32.24. But more often, it's emotional heat. The emotional heat of anger, hot displeasure, indignation, wrath, rage, fury. I think we all understand that, because we also sometimes describe anger in the same way, in terms of something hot. Now, Moses uses this in Deuteronomy 9.19 to describe God's reaction. He calls it hot displeasure. And it is placed alongside two other words for anger and wrath 
all generated because God's people have been unfaithful. Why? The whole incident with the golden calf. Here he had brought them out, and now they quickly had turned and made an idol for themselves, and we're going to go back to Egypt. That's in Exodus 32. In Jeremiah 42.18, it is translated as wrath that had been poured out on the inhabitants of Jerusalem for their sins. In Jeremiah 10.25, the prophet calls upon God to pour out his wrath, his fury on the evil nations that do not know the Lord and have laid waste on Jacob. It would be a consuming, hot type of wrath. In 2 Kings 22.13-17, we find that while sorrow and repentance can delay it, it does not divert it once it's been generated in God. However, in Numbers 25.11, we find that Phinehas took action against those who were playing the harlot with the Midianite women, and God's wrath was turned away because he had planned he was going to destroy Israel there. Now, what this seems to indicate then is that once the Lord has this type of hot, consuming anger, this kind of wrath, it's either going to be poured out or some sort of justice must be executed. Now, that makes that very serious. How do we deal with that? Well, eventually that ends up back into Christ. One of the words we use concerning Christ's death is expiation. That is when all the wrath has come upon Christ and he has absorbed it on our behalf. It has to do with God's anger. Christ has taken that for us. Now, Hema, Hema is also using the Old Testament to describe this kind of anger in men, sometimes righteously, sometimes unrighteously. For example, uh, Esau in Genesis 27, we find he is, has a hot fury against Jacob because Jacob had deceived the father and had gotten his blessing. In fact, it was so hot, hot that Jacob had to flee to Haran and remained there for over two decades before he dared venture back, and even then he was greatly afraid of Esau. It was a hot, abiding anger. Now, uh, the Ammon, 2 Kings 5.12, had come down to Elisha and wanted to know how he could get rid of his leprosy. He was a, uh, an official in the um, Aramean kingdom. And Elisha told him to go wash in the Jordan River, and he got... And here's the word, very angry, hot anger, rage, because he felt that the rivers in Damascus were far superior to anything in Israel. And it wasn't until a couple of his servants convinced him to well, at least go try it, and he went and did it, and then he was cleansed from his leprosy, just like Elisha said, that his attitude changed. And then he was very grateful. This is the kind of righteous anger that Ahasuerus had when he found that, that Haman had been plotting to kill all the Jews. He found that out from Esther. And once this anger was in him, it was going to do something. In fact, we find in the story of Esther, the king's anger does not subside until Haman is hanging on the very gallows he had prepared for righteous Mordecai. In this case, Proverbs 6.14 is carried out in reality. The fury, and this is the same word, Hema, of a king is like a messengers of death, but a wise man will appease it. Haman was not wise, and he was executed. The words translated as enrage in Proverbs 6, 34 and 35. 
And this is a warning to those who would go into their neighbor's wife. It says, for whoever touches her will not be unpunished. Then it goes on to say this, verse 34. For jealousy enrages a man, and he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not accept any ransom, nor will he be satisfied, though you may give many gifts. The inability to appease this type of anger is why it's so serious. Proverbs 27, 4, uses the same word, saying wrath, hema, is fierce and anger, a different word, op, is a flood. But who can stand before jealousy? Can't. It's a very serious anger. Scriptures warn that we need to be careful of hot fury as those who are righteous, of being caught up in it. And we can. Proverbs 19.19 says, A man of great anger, and that again is this word, Hema, will bear the penalty, for if you rescue him, you only have to do it again. You might call such a person a hothead, and they continue to go back to doing the same thing they, they did before. Psalm 37, 7 through 11, gives another warning. It says, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger, forsake wrath. Do not fret, and then that's this word hema. It leads only to evil doing, for evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked will be no more, and you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land, delight themselves in abundant prosperity. If you go that direction, you allow yourself to get that point of that kind of anger, you're in trouble. You're going to have problems. You're going to end up in doing evil. Now, very similar to this word, a related word is heron. Similar meaning, and it's also one of the strongest words in the scriptures for anger. According to the theological word book of the Old Testament, and I use that a lot in this study, This word is related to an Aramaic root meaning to cause fire to burn or an Arabic root meaning burning sensation. The Hebrew word is only used in a metaphorical sense in reference to an extreme anger of wrath that is hot, that is burning. The noun form is used only in reference to God. And it's often joined with another Hebrew word for anger, ap, and together, they're usually translated as something like burning anger, Exodus 32.12, fierce anger, Numbers 25.4, or fierce wrath, 1 Samuel 28.18. Now, this idea that God has a burning wrath is something that both surprises and repels some people. Why? Because they end up with some kind of idea of a God that doesn't really exist, It's opposite the true God. They think of in terms of something like a doting grandfather. He only gives good gifts to his grandchildren and refuses to ever correct them. That's not the God who created us. That is a character that is a lie. That's a false God. Our true God is a holy God. He is our creator. He is righteous. He is just. He is loving. And he will carry out justice because it is part of protecting his holy nature and his interests. Because the Lord is righteous, because he is sovereign, he will carry out his divine order. And he has an infinite passion towards the objects of his love. 
And that corresponds to a holy jealousy. Now here, you need to understand that we usually use the term jealousy as a synonym for envy. But the stronger definition of jealousy, and it's often its usage, actually takes on the idea of a, being a fierce protection of one's rights and possessions. A fierce protection of one's rights and possessions. And this then demands that God responds to the various levels of sin against him with a proper jealousy towards it and protection of himself and what belongs to him. There is going to be anger towards anyone or anything that profanes, tries to block or rejects his love or his order. Now, we naturally understand this to some degree because we understand it is, there is a, a proper and a holy jealousy between a husband and a wife and their children. It extends to one another and to their kids. They are going to seek to protect those family relationships from any sort of danger, either internal or external. Now, if you take that idea, multiply it by infinity, you have some idea of the nature of God's holy jealousy. This is his burning anger that rises from that. It's the nature of God. Now, Moses warned the Israelites in Deuteronomy 4, 23-24 They'd have to be careful to keep the covenant because God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Do not fall into idolatry. This is the nature of the God you are serving. It comes from this word group. Now, they had already seen this carried out. Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10 offered strange fire before the Lord And from the altar, fire went forth from the Lord and consumed them. They were irreverent. They had seen this in the matter of the sin at Peor, where the people played harlotry with the Midianite women. The result, 23,000 died from a plague the Lord sent among them, and 1,000 died by execution by the judges of Israel. Numbers 25 and 1 Corinthians 10. This type of righteous burning anger that's consuming to this degree only belongs to God. And there's no hint of anything evil within it. Now, fortunately, God has other attributes and it tempers this. Otherwise, we would all be consumed immediately. Second Peter 3.9 tells us the Lord is patient, not willing for any to perish, but that all come to Repentance. That's the Lord's present mercy. That is what's extended to us and what is keeping us from being consumed by this burning anger that God has towards the affront that all people have made toward God. And yet we understand it is going to be unleashed and it will consume the wicked in the future. Isaiah 13, 13 says of this future day, Therefore I will make the heavens tremble, the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of this burning anger. Judgment will come in the future. Only those who are in Christ are safe. Now, man can and does have something similar at times because there's a related word, uh, hori, that is used of God and man. It's related. It's not exactly the same, but it has a similar idea. 
It was the Lord's fierce anger that he cut off Judah and let Nebuchadnezzar destroy Jerusalem, Lamentations 2.3 tells us. We find in man that it was justified in the case of Jonathan. 1 Samuel 20, verse 34, deals with King Saul throwing a spear at his son because Jonathan actually questioned his reason for being upset that David wasn't there. That's all it really was. Now, if your father threw a spear and tried to kill you, do you think you might have reason to be a little bit hot under the collar? Well, Jonathan was. He had extreme displeasure at this. The Ephraimites, though, are a case of the opposite. They had no justification for their fierce anger. Second Chronicles 25, 7, we find King Amaziah had hired them and paid them already to go into battle with him against Seir. The Lord, through a prophet, told him, send them home, which he did with pay. Now, let's see. I got hired for a job. I didn't do anything, but I got paid. Hey, nothing wrong with that, right? They had fierce anger about it. Why? Because they wanted to be joining in to get the spoils when they attacked Seir. That was their whole issue. They were that greedy. And that's why God said, I don't want them with you. If they go with you, I will not be with you. That's how bad their character was. So here's a case of fierce anger that is unrighteous. A related verb form of the same word, hera, is also used for God and man. It's also a very strong word describing anger being kindled as as you would kindle a fire. And it's used in reference to both the source that causes the anger and the object such anger is against. When it's used in reference to the Lord, it's a righteous anger that's generated um, and then his anger is toward anything that is unrighteous. That's, the name, again, the nature of God. Let me give you an example. In Numbers 11, the Lord responded to the complaining of the people that they lacked meat by sending in a lot of quail. I mean, a lot of quail. More than they could possibly do anything with. There is an abundance of it. So what's the reaction of the people? They said, well, if I have that much, hey, this is great. I'll just go get one when I need one. Instead, the scripture says they went out and all day and all night they're collecting quail. They were greedy. Because of that, it says the anger of the Lord was kindled. It was provoked. It rose up as a fire against the people. And the Lord struck the people with a severe plague. There wasn't gratitude. There was greed on their part. Now, when this word is used in reference to man, it could be righteous or unrighteous. In Job 32, 2 and 3, Elihu, it, his anger, it says, is kindled against Job and his three friends. Against Job because he tried to justify himself before God. And you can't do that. Against his three friends is because they had no answer to Job's dilemma, and yet they kept accusing him. It was a righteous anger that was being kindled. It's reflected of God's own reaction. In fact, God does have that reaction. Job 42, 7, the Lord rebukes Job's three sorry counselors, saying to Eliphaz a Temanite, quote, my wrath is kindled, same word, kindled against you, against your two friends, because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. You've been lying about me. I don't know about you, but you know, there's something about when people lie about you, it gets you upset. It kindles something in you. Well, that's the idea of this word. Their arrogance, their self-righteousness, it prompted their Lord's great disapproval. Now, the same person can have a righteous anger kindled at 
one time and an unrighteous anger kindled at another time. In fact, that's true of all of us. 1 Samuel 11, Saul, we find, has a righteous anger. The Ammonites are besieged in the city of Jabesh-Gilead. He has come and told about it, and then it says, The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he became angry. This anger was kindled on him after the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And it was a righteous anger, and he went and he rescued the city. Yet Saul is also an example of a man who became unrighteously angry. I already mentioned about him throwing his spear at Jonathan and Jonathan getting angry. Well, that's because Saul was already angry because Jonathan told him, "Is well, where's David? Well, David went home to be with his family for a special event. I told him, go ahead and go. That's when Saul threw the spear. He got angry and threw a spear. That's unrighteous anger. I'm upset. I plan to murder him and you sent him away. Genesis 39, 19. Here's an example of a man's anger kindled for a right reason, and yet he was still wrong. Potiphar, Genesis 39. He comes home and his wife tells him, this servant of yours, this Hebrew, tried to lay with me, tried to seduce me. Now, if you were a godly man and someone tried to do this to your wife, What would your feelings be? You're going to have a great anger kindled within you. It's a proper holy jealousy. At the same time, he was absolutely wrong in having this happen. Why? Because his wife was lying. So a proper motivation for the wrong reason is still unrighteous anger. This is one of the reasons that Proverbs gives us so many warnings about being slow to anger. We may feel like there's a righteous reason, but... It could have a wrong basis. Proverbs 15, 8, a hot-tempered man, Hema, this word, stirs up strife, but the slow to anger up calms a dispute. Don't be hot. Be slow to get there. You may not have all the reasons, all the facts. Now, for the most part, man's anger is kindled for sinful reasons, and it's therefore unrighteous. Jonah became angry because a plant that had been given to him by God for shade from the, the hot sun, it was killed by a worm. And he had this kind of anger. He was a hot anger in addition to having sit in the hot sun. So he was doubly hot. Now, we can understand the displeasure if you have something that's nice and pleasant like that and suddenly it's dead. You're, you're not happy about it. There's some displeasure there. But Jonah's anger was completely selfish. First of all, it's not his plant. And even more, when we look at the reason he wore was where he was, he didn't have to be there. He had, didn't want to go to Nineveh. God forced the issue, had a big fish swallow him and spit him back up. Now you're going to go to Nineveh. He, his, his preaching was nearly nothing. He walks into the middle of the city and just says basically, and 40 days and God's going to destroy this place, the end, and he leaves. That's his message of repentance to the city. Now he goes outside the city and he gets up on a hill overlooking the city and he's sitting there in the hot sun because he's waiting for the Lord to destroy this place because he despises them. The Lord was gracious. The people repented and he spared them. And Jonah's upset. It's unrighteous anger. Kindled for sinful reasons. And there's so many other examples. Cain's anger, envious of his brother Abel, and so he murders him, Genesis 4. Balak's anger against Balaam because he would not curse Israel for him. 
Numbers 24. Saul was envious of the praise being given to David, and so he had this kind of anger. First Samuel 18. In Nehemiah 3 and 4, Sanballat became angry because Nehemiah was being successful in building the walls around Jerusalem. Proverbs 24, 19 and 20 uses this very term saying this, Do not fret, hirah, because of evildoers, or be envious of the wicked, for there will be no future for the evil man. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. In other words, the idea here is that do not let your anger get kindled in you because of evildoers. God will deal with them. And we can trust them. He will deal with them in his timing and complete efficiency. And if we're really thinking about it, we should be praying for them that God will spare them and they'll repent. But we can leave it in God's hands. Do not let things get to you and prod you to become hot under the collar and get this kind of anger. Now, a similar word is chaos. It's similar to harab, but it's not quite as strong. It's not quite to the idea of kindling a fire. The word means to provoke the heart to a heated condition, which in turn leads to specific action. And so it's usually translated as vex or agitate or stir up. Now Moses warned the people in Deuteronomy 4.25 that they would provoke God when they did evil in his sight. Now if these provocations would continue long enough, then they would kindle the fire of God's consuming fierce wrath. So he's warning them, don't go there. 2 Kings 23.26 is an example of this. It says, however, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness, Haran, of his great wrath, op, in which his anger, op, burned against Judah because of, and here's the two words, all the provocations, chaos, with which Manasseh provoked, again, that word caused him. So the provocations ended up with an anger and then a very, very strong burning anger because it just continued on and on. Now, if the level of provoking hasn't reached that level, then we find that in God it can be calmed. Ezekiel 16.42 is an example. So I will calm my fury against you and my jealousy will depart from you and I'll be pacified and angry no more. Now, people also can be provoked to a hot condition. In fact, I would be safe to say that I think everybody here has had that happen at some point. Now, we find two interesting things, though. Evil people can provoke godly people to grief by their sin, their actions of sin or what they're doing. For example, Hannah, her rival, uh, Peninnah, the, the other wife, continually provoked her because she had no kids. It ended up causing great grief, great emotional distress. She was wrong for doing that. In Psalm 6, it describes the vexation caused the righteous by their adversaries, continually provoking us. And all of us have adversaries, and they provoke us, something to needle us, to try to push us, and, it, and we get hot by it. We become displeased. There are two proverbs that use this word in this sense, and translate either grief or vex. Proverbs 17.25 says, A foolish son is a grief, that's his word, chaos, to his father, and bitterness to her who bore him. 
In other words, a father's heart becomes hot with distress at the foolishness of a son, and while at the same time a mother's pain actually is a little worse, stronger, it goes into a despondency. The wickedness prods. Proverbs 21.19 describes the consequence of having an ungodly spouse. It says it is better to live in a desert land than with a contentious and vexing woman. The vexing word here is kas, this one who, who prods and provokes to, to hot to an anger. Now, in this particular proverb, the wife is ungodly, but really the principle is the same. If the husband's ungodly, he does the same thing. He's vexing to his wife. And if they're both that way, you know, the marriage isn't going to last long. They're vexing to each other. When I was in uh, California ministering, I had a fellow who came, um, he was a new Christian, and he came to me in all seriousness, and he was reading through Proverbs, he came upon this proverb. And in all seriousness, because he didn't understand how to apply scriptures, he just said, does this mean I can leave his wife, who was extremely contentious, and I can move to Mojave? I said, I'm sorry, no. (laughs) I wanted to say yes. She was very vexing. But you can see where it leads. Now, in the opposite direction, the wicked are provoked to vexation and anger by the actions and the lives of godly people. Did you realize that? As you live a righteous life, you really are irritating other people. The wicked don't like it. They can't stand it. That's one reason they react against you. Proverbs, or Psalm 112, verse 10, describes this in general terms, while Ecclesiastes 7, 9 teaches that such revoking of the wicked is a sign of their foolishness. The fact that it bothers them just proves they are foolish. Proverbs 12, 16 uses this word in the same sense. A fool's anger is known at once, but a prudent man conceals dishonor. In other words, a fool cannot hide the burden of his displeasure when anything provokes him. You're going to know it. Proverbs 27.3 describes the burden such fools are to everybody else. A stone is heavy and sand is weighty, but the provocation of a fool is heavier than both of them. It's hard to be around them. Another word, a son and its cognates are the last in this broad category of words that have something to do with anger that are related to heat. This one refers to smoke that rises from a fire. It's used both literally and figuratively. Smoke and fire are often physical aspects of theophanies. That's when God manifests himself in some sort of physical form. For example, when uh, God made his covenant with Abraham in Genesis fifteen seventeen, there was a smoking oven and a flaming torch that, that manifested God's presence there. When the children of Israel had gotten to Mount Sinai, his presence was manifested in smoke and fire upon the mountain. It scared them a lot, and they finally decided, Moses can go up, we're staying here. I, that's too much of a God for us. You tell us what he has to say. That's a good attitude. Humility and understanding, this is the kind of God that we actually have. The word is also used figuratively in the sense of God's anger in passages of Deuteronomy 29.20 and Psalm 74.1, which says this, Oh God, why have you rejected this forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? So you can see the analogy. Something that's hot, if it's related to fire, fire gives off smoke. If it's smoking, it must be angry. Those, there's the tie. It's only used once in Proverbs 10, verse 26. 
And it uses this characteristic of physical smoke to describe the irritation caused by others, or to others, by those who are lazy. Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so it is the lazy one to those who send him. You ever had someone do that? Sometimes parents do that with your kids. You send them to go to a job and they don't really want to do it. They're lazy about it. That's irritating. Very irritating. The next word, group, kesap, and its cognates did not appear in Proverbs, but I want to just mention it briefly because it, it gives you full understanding of the, the ramifications of anger in, throughout the scriptures. This word is used to describe a branch that is snapped off or splintered. And so when you use metaphorically, it refers to the fracturing of a relationship. It's used of God and people in various ways, as uh, translated as anger, furious, wrathful, enraged. Anger is dangerous partly because it fractures the relationship. It fractures relationship between us and God. It fractures our relationship between us and other people. It splinters it. It shatters it. And so anger has to be, we have to be very careful about it. Zeop, the next word group, refers to a raging storm. It's used literally in Jonah 1.15 of the storm that had them all threatened and why they finally threw Jonah overboard. It was a bad storm. It's the same word. It also describes the storm in a heart that is manifested in a troubled appearance as in Daniel 1.10. Dejection, Genesis 46, or rage, 2 Chronicles 26, 19. It's used in Proverbs. Proverbs 19, 3 describes the cause of the storm within a foolish man's heart. It says, a foolish, the foolishness of man ruins his way. His heart rages, Zayap. His heart rages against the Lord. His own folly brings him to destruction, and then he gets mad about it. King Uzziah is an example of this. King Uzziah decided he's going to take on the priestly role. So he goes in the temple. He's going to offer the, the incense. The priests come in and seek to stop him. It's not for him to do. It's contrary to God's law. So instead of heeding them, it says he, is, he raged against them. Zap. It really is described there in the first part of Proverbs 19.12. The king's wrath, Zop, is like a roaring of a lion. But his own ruin was in it because the Lord struck him with leprosy and he remained a leper till the day of his death. Another word, Zayam, is an anger of indignation. This is the experiencing or expressing of an intense anger, usually in denouncing something or in scolding. It is a characteristic of God. In Psalm 711, it states, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. The psalm goes on to speak of God's judgment then upon the wicked. In Isaiah 66, 14, it states that God is indignant toward his enemies. He will execute judgment upon them. This word occurs three times in Proverbs. First use Proverbs 22.14 in the sense of a person who is denounced or cursed. It says, the mouth of an adulteress is a deep pit. He who is cursed, and this is the word, Zayam, he who is cursed of the Lord will fall into it. In other words, those who have been declared to be evil are easy prey for the seductions of the adulteress. The deep pit. In Proverbs 24.24, it's a reaction to the perversion of the wicked. It says, 
He who says the wicked, you are righteous, people will curse him, nations will abhor him. Abhor is Zam. Or Zam. God pronounces a woe upon those who do this in Isaiah 5.20, who say what is good is evil and what is evil is good. So it's no wonder that people that they do this upon will have an intense anger upon them. If you want to know one of the reasons that there is more contention within our own nation, this is part of it. We have those who are saying what is good is evil and what is evil is good. There is an anger that is caused because of that. Proverbs 25, 23 is the last usage in, of this word in Proverbs. It's a natural reaction here towards those who are malicious. It says, the north wind brings forth rain and a backbiting tongue and angry, zam, countenance. In other words, tail bearers and slanders should never be surprised when people get upset at them. It's a natural reaction. It's an indignant reaction. There's also an interesting word group, a bar. It, it's a... Uh, Primary meaning is to pass over, by or through. In fact, one of the words from this word group is where we get the word Hebrew. It means those who passed over or came from beyond the river. It's first used of Abraham. It's used of God in several places to describe the Lord's burning anger that overflows to judge and destroy the wicked. Example, that's Isaiah thirteen nine. Behold, the day of the Lord is a coming cruel and with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, he will exterminate the sinners from it. It's used of a king in Proverbs uh, 14.35 towards those who dishonor him. It says, a king's favor is towards a servant who acts wisely, but his anger, this abar, is toward him who acts shamefully. Proverbs 22.8, it's used of the wicked. He who sows iniquity will reap vanity, and the rod of his fury, abar here, his fury will perish. And when this word is combined in a sentence with pride, it's an anger of arrogance and of insolence. Proverbs twenty-one, twenty-four: haughty, scoffer, um, proud are his names, who acts with insolent pride. Insolent is the word abar. And then Proverbs 11, 4 and 23 use this word, to speak of the doom that await the wicked because God's wrath is going to overflow them. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, a bar, but righteousness delivers from death, Proverbs 11.4. The desire of the righteous is only good, but the expectation of the wicked is wrath. It's, it should be expected. It's going to overflow them, Proverbs 11.23. And then there's an anger that trembles. Regaz. The primary meaning is to shake, to quake, and includes to trembling that can come from anger, fear, or anticipation, as well as the earthquakes and things like that. Used only in Proverbs 29.9, in Proverbs, describes the extreme reactions to the foolish. It's just interesting, Proverbs. It says, when a wise man has a controversy with a foolish man, the foolish man either rages, and it's this word, regaz, or laughs. There is no rest. This guy is, is to extremes. He's either so upset and mad, he's shaking as he's demonstrating his, his great displeasure, or he's laughing out loud. That's why you don't want to have a controversy of a foolish man. There is no rest with someone like that. 
The most common word for anger in Scripture is op. Op. It actually refers to the physical nose, the nostril, or the face in general. But it is mostly used, in fact, almost all of its uses actually go more for a metaphor for anger. Now, how in the world does the nose and the nostrils get tied into anger? Well, it seems to come from the idea that when there is great emotional turmoil, our breathing pattern changes slightly. Okay? And the nostrils flare. And since this became the most common word for anger in the Old Testament. It's used of both God and men. And as with other terms we've already looked at, when it's used of God, it is referring to a righteous anger. Now, this particular word has a greater emphasis on the emotional aspects of anger and not the, uh, the specifics of its expression. It's speaking more of the emotion that is there. And so when it's used of God, it's a righteous anger. It's speaking of his emotion towards those things that have offended his holiness and his love. And again, his, his anger is always righteous. It's always just. It's always in keeping with and prompted by all those other attributes, as we've already seen. Now, it's possible for a man's anger to be righteous, and there are things the righteous should be angry about because that is a reflection of godliness. There are things that... Uh, uh, there are sin and its consequences we should be angry about. Those things that are dishonoring to God those things that are destructive upon man. And yet even with that, godly men have to be very careful because if we let anger control us and push us, and again, this word is speaking more of the emotion, if we let that take over, we can easily slide into something that's no longer correct, no longer righteous. That's why Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 admonishes, be angry and yet do not sin. So right there you can see it. it's, the anger is not necessarily sin. There are times to be angry, but don't let it get you to sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not give the devil an opportunity. Be careful here. Deal with the issues quickly. Don't let it fester and, and then end up causing a burning and maybe a bitterness where the devil gets an opportunity to get his hand in there and lead you astray, and you will sin. So even righteous anger we have to be very careful about. And that's why Proverbs gives so many encouragements. Be slow to anger. It warns about being quick to become angry. Proverbs 14, 29. He who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. Proverbs fifteen eighteen. A hot-tempered man, hema, that's a, that very strong word, a burning anger. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but the slow to anger, and that's the word op, the slow to even have, uh, be, have an emotion generated, calms a dispute. Proverbs 19.11, a man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it's his glory to overlook a transgression. Proverbs 16.32, he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, 
and he who rules the spirit than he who can capture the city. That tells you again this emotional thing. Don't let the emotion take you off and control you. The emotion is there. Recognize it. Deal with it. Don't let it control. That's why, it again, contrast here is ruling your spirit. So the slow to anger show discretion. They show great wisdom. They're better than the mighty. They're able to calm a dispute. While those who are quick-tempered, they exalt folly and they stir up trouble. Now, the anger of man, though, is generally unrighteous because man is innately selfish and sinful. And so man becomes angry when he does not get what he wants. And what he usually wants is usually sinful to some degree. And that's why we have such a problem with anger. That's one of the first things you could, should ask yourself is when you're angry is, why am I angry? What is it that I want, I want that I'm not getting that's prodding this? That will give you a clue to what it is most of the time. And that's why Proverbs has such warnings about anger. Proverbs 29, 22, the angry man stirs up strife, a hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. Proverbs 29, 8, scorners set a city on a flame, but wise men turn away anger. When anger controls, it does all sorts of damage and just gets worse and worse and worse. Now, you want to avoid becoming a person who becomes angry. Proverbs 22, 24 and 25 Strongly advises, do not associate with a man given to anger or go with a hot-tempered man or you will learn his ways and you will find a snare for yourself. Now, frankly, a lot of people always want to blame their blood ethnic heritage on it. You know, I'm Irish, that's why I'm angry. I'm, you name it, I've probably heard almost every group at some point use that. Because I'm whatever ethnic group, that's why I'm angry. No, it's not. It's, it's worse than that. It's an obvious truth. You're angry because you learn that behavior usually from your parents. That's how they reacted. That's how you react. Or some relative. That's the blood tie to it. It doesn't go back generations and generations other than your parents probably learned it from their parents who learned it from their parents who learned it from their parents and on back. And so it's passed on as a learned behavior. Proverbs 30, verse 33 points out, For the churning of milk produces butter. The pressing the nose brings forth blood. So the churning of anger produces strife. Now that's a very obvious truth. And yet people who are prone to fighting either don't seem to recognize this truth, and they do it anyways, or I think they like the strife and they prod it. Stay away from those kinds of people. Now, if you are prone to being hot-tempered, then the big quest is, how do I break this cycle, both for the benefit of my kids and, frankly, your friends too? How do you break this, this, this cycle? How do you diminish anger? Proverbs 15.1. Proverbs 15.1. A gentle answer turns away wrath. Hema, the, the worst is hot, even the, the worst kind of anger. A gentle answer can turn that away. Yet a harsh word stirs up, up anger, the emotion, which can lead to all sorts of trouble. In other words, learn to be gentle instead of harsh. Now, to do that, though, it requires you to be humble, and that takes us back to the same place we ended last week, humility. 
Learn the fear of the Lord and humble yourself before him. Recognize that God's ways are always, always better than yours. Commit yourself to learning his ways, learning about him, who he is, what his nature is like, how he wants you to live, and then commit yourself to following it. Ask him to forgive you of your sins because of Jesus' sacrifice for you and to change you into a true follower of Christ. That's where the solution lies. My family will tell you my, that I'm generally fairly calm now, sometimes too calm. It's like, get some emotion out of that guy. <clears throat> that hasn't always been true. Jimmy can give you some uh, insight into my anger at times when I'm pushed over the edge and it has been provoked and then a fire kindled, and then there's the emotion up, and then there's Hema. It's a burning, consuming rage, which he usually was on the receiving end of it. The sad thing is I've seen him do the same thing. So we've had long talks together and agreed that we're going to have to help each other. Because to this date, I have never seen any time I've lost my temper ever produce anything of value. Nothing. Broken a lot of things, never produced anything of value. And so we try to help each other. Frankly, having kids is one of the things that's probably me the most to learn this, to have a gentle answer, to not be harsh, to be calm, to not let my emotions get the best of me, but for the sake of my kids, whom I love dearly, to learn to be different. I don't want them to be learning behaviors from me that are going to be detrimental to them the rest of their life. The side benefit is other people also reap the same benefit. So I speak from experience too. It can be done, but it takes humility. It takes admitting you're wrong. It takes admitting you need help. You need an encouragement. You need to have it pointed out. And it takes self-control. All that comes as you submit yourself to the Lord. It comes down to something really basic for the Christian. You should be able to say with Paul, make it your goal to say as Paul did in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. That's all the humility that is necessary because that's complete humility. It's no longer me. But the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of the God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I have a different purpose in life. A different purpose in life directs you to different actions in life, including your emotions, including dealing with anger.